1: The epilogue to this episode contains discussion of sexual violence that may be disturbing to some. Please take care while listening. You're listening to American Shadows, a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Mankey. Edward Joseph O'Hare, often called EJ, knew what he wanted in life. In 1912, the 19-year-old married Selma Lau, and they had three children, daughters Patricia and Marilyn, and son Edward Jr., whom they called Butch. Selma's father allowed the family to live in the apartment above the family grocery store. Realizing hard work alone wouldn't give him and his family the best in life, E.J. studied to become a lawyer. In 1923, he passed the bar and found work at a law firm through the years he worked tirelessly he eventually bought a new home complete with a swimming pool and skating rink in the affluent neighborhood of holly hills but ej's ambition was insatiable he wanted only the best for his son believing butch was somewhat lazy ej enrolled him at the western military academy most of ej's wealth had come from his client owen patrick smith the commissioner of the international greyhound association Smith had created a mechanical rabbit that greyhounds chased on the track, and when Smith died, E.J. bought the rights from his widow. Sensing an opportunity, E.J. took his mechanical rabbit concept to Chicago's most influential resident, Al Capone. It didn't take long for Capone to determine E.J.'s talent and hire him on as one of his lawyers. With his influence, money, and team of attorneys, it seemed as though Capone was untouchable. The government had tried countless times to find something to stick on Capone, but his lawyers, including E.J., always got him out of it. Capone and E.J. made considerable money by operating Greyhound tracks in Chicago, Boston, and Miami. Uh, Soon, E.J. moved his family into a large mansion that filled an entire block. Uh, For security, the whole estate was fenced. They even had live-in help. Though he was directly involved with one of America's most notorious gangsters, EJ tried to teach Butch right from wrong. Despite his own career path, EJ wanted a better way of life for his son. Butch accompanied his father on many trips, and the two shared their love of planes. When EJ flew, he looked for opportunities to allow his son a few minutes behind the controls. In 1927, EJ divorced Selma and left her and his daughters in St. Louis. He met Ursula Granada, a sister to a state representative with strong mob ties. For seven years, the couple remained engaged. Devout Catholics, the two couldn't marry since the church didn't recognize E.J.'s divorce. By 1930, E.J. worried about the influence his mob ties might have on his son's reputation and his application to the Naval Academy. The only way out was to turn on Capone. E.J. worked with the IRS, and with a rising talent at the Justice Department, Elliot Ness. Ness headed a group that was finally able to get Capone on tax evasion and thousands of violations of the Volstead Act. EJ informed the government that Capone had fixed the jury. After his conviction, Capone was sentenced to Alcatraz for tax evasion. He was released in 1939. That November, a car sped past EJ and gunned him down. Though he never lived to see it, E.J.'s effort allowed his son to join the Naval Academy and go on to become a World War II hero. Butch O'Hare single-handedly shot down five Japanese bombers, saving the USS Lexington, for which he received the Medal of Honor. In 1949, Chicago changed the name of Orchard Depot Airport to O'Hare International in his honor. And Elliot Ness, the young agent who helped bring down Capone, also rose to fame but sometimes fame has a dark side. I'm Lauren Vogelbaum. Welcome to American Shadows. We are fascinated with true crime. We have news reports, books, and whole streaming channels devoted to it. And no category of crime seems to capture our attention as much as serial killers. Today, we have advancements in forensics, technology, and specialized profilers to solve murders. In the 1930s, though, law enforcement had to rely on other methods. September 23rd of 1935 was a perfect day for kids to spend on the perhaps quaintly named Jackass Hill, a slope near East 49th Street in the Kingsbury-run area of Cleveland, Ohio. In the winter, the kids used the 60-foot slope for sledding. But on autumn days, when the temperature hovered at a mild 71 degrees and the sky was a cloudless blue, kids took to the hill for games. Sixteen-year-old James Wagner and twelve-year-old Peter Costura took turns catching and tossing a ball. One of them missed, and the ball rolled down the slope into the bushes at the bottom. The boys chased after. Nearby, two other boys watched the ball sail down the hill with James and Peter in pursuit. And, at the same time, both sets of boys came across something unexpected. Instead of the ball, Peter and James found a man's decapitated head in the bushes. The other two boys found a headless body. All four ran back home, neither group realizing the head and body belonged to two different men. Other kids gathered at the top of the hill as police searched the area, After a search of the bushes, police found another head and body, making it a double homicide. Aside from decapitating the men, the killer had drained the bodies of blood and removed their genitals. Afterward, the killer had cleaned and washed the corpses, and dumped them in the park, where they would be easily found. One Edward Andresy was identified as one of the victims. The second remained a John Doe. Reports estimated that Andresy had been dead for a few days— The John Doe had been dead for over three weeks. For months, the investigation went nowhere. People had no clues, no suspects, no witnesses. A mild September gave way to a bitter and cold January. The sound of a dog barking relentlessly urged one resident to bundle up and head to her neighbor's house to complain. Two baskets sat in a snowbank outside the home. Inside were packages neatly wrapped in newspapers— Assuming they were hams from the size and shape, she knocked on the door to notify the neighbor. Charles Page followed his neighbor outside. He unwrapped the packages. Inside were frozen, human body parts. Not long after, police converged on the scene without taking care to preserve it for evidence. Even though they never found her head, police identified the victim as Florence Palillo, a waitress, barkeep, and occasional sex worker, According to the coroner, Florence died after her throat had been slit. While the community worried about the murders and their safety, the police took an unbelievable stance. Since they couldn't find Florence's head, they questioned whether her death had been a homicide. Their lack of investigation only fueled residents' growing distrust of the police force. During Prohibition, news of crooked cops surfaced frequently complaints of incompetency and laziness filled Mayor Harold Burton's office. Dealing with a serial killer on top of extensive corruption overwhelmed Burton. While he dedicated his detectives to the murders, he called the one person he thought could clean up corruption within the force, Elliot Ness. The public loved Ness. Reporters had dubbed him and his group of agents the Untouchables because Capone couldn't buy them off. Dark-haired and square-jawed, Ness was the perfect example of what law enforcement should be. He took the job. Instead of sitting behind a desk, he took to the streets. Daily headlines were marked on his efforts, from taking down crooked politicians and cops to midnight raids on gambling parlors and busting extortion rings. His exploits were legendary. America had a real-life superhero. Not only was Ness untouchable, he also seemed unstoppable. Yet, Someone else in the city also shared those two traits with Ness, the serial killer who the press began calling the Butcher of Kingsbury Run, and while the mayor hadn't hired Ness to work on the case, the two would soon collide. The day was too sunny, too pleasant to sit in a classroom. It was June 5th of 1936, and with summer vacation just around the corner, 13-year-old Gomez Ivy and 11-year-old Louis Chile decided to skip school. At 8.30 that morning, the two friends left home with their fishing poles. Lake Erie had a couple of great fishing spots, and they might even get in a quick swim before heading home if they had time. To avoid being seen, they walked along the railroad tracks for a while, and then cut through the east side of Kingsbury Run. The strip of land had once been a boomtown with businesses and refineries owned by the likes of J.D. Rockefeller and William Halsey Doane. Prosperity turned into poverty during the Depression. Instead of people hustling to and from businesses, they now camped out in doorways and lived in cardboard boxes in the alleys. Despite lost jobs and banks demanding that mortgages be paid in full, President Hoover didn't believe Americans needed the government's help. The unemployment rate reached 25%. Although people attempted to help each other, most families barely had enough to get by, much less to give aid. People lined up for blocks for soup and bread. Officials chased the houseless out of the surviving cities. The east side of Kingsbury Run became a haven for those without anywhere to go. Often referred to as Hoovervilles, areas like these had cropped up across the country. The boys passed shanty after shanty, some made from scrap lumber, others from brick and tar paper. People lay in covered doorways. For warmth, they used newspapers, often referred to as Hoover blankets. A man in one doorway busied himself with fitting the worn-out soles of his shoes with cardboard. The boys continued through to a barren stretch of property along the tracks, A ball of fabric under a willow tree caught their attention. Curious, they decided to take a look. The fabric turned out to be a pair of discarded pants. Lewis suggested they rummage through the pockets in case there was a coin or two. They would likely turn out the pockets and find nothing more than lint, but didn't hurt to check. Gomez shrugged and picked up a nearby stick. He prodded the lump of fabric to be sure a family of rats hadn't taken up residency in their own Hoover shack and while nothing stirred or shot out of a pant leg, the ball of fabric rolled away. More curious than ever, the boys unfurled the fabric. A man's head rolled out onto the patch of dirt and grass. Horrified, the boys grabbed their fishing poles and ran. They took no notice of the men in the doorways or the families peeking out of their lean-tos. Gomez and Louis didn't stop running until they got back home. The two friends headed straight to Gomez's house. They no longer cared about how much trouble they'd be in for ditching school. Unfortunately, his mother wasn't home. Too afraid to leave the house, the boys huddled together until she arrived hours later. She no sooner walked in the door than both boys began to blurt out what they'd found. Mrs. Ivy calmed the boys down and listened to the story again. As calm as she could manage, she left the boys long enough to summon a nearby patrolman and relate her son's story. Patrolman Hendricks asked the boys for the exact location, but they were so upset that they couldn't recall the precise spot. Hendricks called for backup. It didn't take officers long to find the head, along with a white shirt, a striped dress shirt, underwear, and a belt. Most of the clothing was torn and bloody, Nearby, they found a pair of Oxford shoes, still neatly tied, and socks stuffed inside. Further down the tracks, they found the man's naked body. The newspapers reported the murder the next morning. The coroner determined decapitation as the cause of death, and that the victim was alive when his killer started to cut into him. No one knew who the man was, despite six tattoos they thought might help to identify him. A cast was made of his face, and sent to the Great Lakes Exposition. Certainly someone there had to recognize him. Sadly, though many passed through the gates, not one person came forward with a single clue. A month later, another man's body and severed head were found in the Big Creek area, a bit further south of Cleveland. Due to the advanced decomposition, the coroner determined that this victim had been killed sometime in May. The police had no suspects and few clues. The killer didn't have a preference when it came to gender. They had only one clue. The manner in which the victims were cut suggested a great deal of knowledge about the human body. Mayor Burton was under pressure once again. The detectives assigned to the case began leaning on people living in Hoovervilles, Those who offered up possible clues were frequently arrested. Soon, no one wanted to talk to the police. In June, a boy found human remains while walking under a bridge. In September, another body was found in Kingsbury Run. Elliot Ness was finally assigned to the case in September of 1936. Ness had detectives bring in suspects. They ranged from a man living under a bridge who collected women's shoes to a tightrope walker. Ness came up with his own suspect, Dr. Francis Sweeney. Ness had a problem, though. Sweeney was from a prominent family, and his cousin was a congressman in Ohio's 12th district, and a political rival of Mayor Burton's. Sweeney had once had addictions to alcohol and barbiturates. According to his ex-wife, his violent outbursts had caused her to question his sanity. The papers reported that Sweeney had a reputation for being sadistic. But Ness couldn't find any evidence against him, and Sweeney's family and connections only made the investigation more difficult. Sweeney often mocked the detectives assigned to follow him, and frequently managed to ditch them. Once, he jumped off a moving streetcar onto another, passing in the opposite direction, leaving the detective behind. The department began receiving strange phone calls and envelopes filled with newspaper clippings about the slayings. They also received a note with a drawing of the morgue's front door. Aness received a letter with a photo of a tree in an open field. The message read, Dig Here. In February of 1937, a man came across a woman's torso on Lake Erie's Euclid Beach. Her limbs and head were never found. The coroner stated that the killer had begun taking his victim apart while she was still alive. In August... Ness and the detectives had had enough. Without being able to pin anything on Sweeney, police raided the Hoovervilles, arresting a few dozen men. Then Ness ordered the camps burned to the ground. Ness later said that he destroyed the camps to force the houseless to move elsewhere. He believed the killer mainly targeted those living in Kingsbury Run shanties. Regardless, the public criticized his actions, and the killer was still on the loose. Ness felt confident that Sweeney was the killer. But without a break, he could only watch the body count continue to rise. He began to drink heavily. Friends recounted the cruel jokes he played on them. His wife divorced him after finding out about several affairs. For a short while, in 1937, the murders seemed to stop. But in April of 1938, a construction worker found part of a woman's leg on the Cuyahoga Riverbank. In July, the head and torso, believed to belong to Rose Wallace, were found under a bridge. A month later, police recovered body parts from a male victim, found floating in the Cuyahoga River. In August, scrap collectors found another woman's torso. They found her head, legs, and arms nearby. All were wrapped neatly in butcher paper. Police found a second body not far away. Both were in sight of Ness's office window. The killer was taunting them. Ness's reputation lay in ruin. He sat down with Sweeney one last time. After failing a polygraph, Sweeney had himself admitted to a mental institution. He re-entered society in 1939 for a short period before admitting himself again. He would die in an institution in 1964. The Kingsbury-run murders stopped in 1939 that year, a letter arrived at the police department. The killer stated that he'd moved out to California, where he already killed a woman and buried her long-century boulevard. The police never found a body. A reporter asked Ness about the murders. Ness, no longer the city's hero, replied that the case, as far as he was concerned, was closed. Closed, maybe. But to this day, the case has never been solved. Ness and his career never recovered. He worked as a vice detective for the government on U.S. bases during World War II. After the war, he started a couple of businesses, but both failed. He unsuccessfully ran for mayor in 1947. His second marriage failed for the same reason his first did. Ness continued drinking and philandering. He died penniless in 1957, at the age of 54. Six months after his death, his memoirs were published, spurring the hit TV show, The Untouchables, a year later. After the murders stopped, the residents of Kingsbury Run returned to their lives, celebrating the end of the Great Depression. Cleveland and the rest of America soon forgot about the butcher of Kingsbury Run. Police estimated there were 12 victims. However, there's speculation there may have been more. One hot day in July of 1936, Two railway workers in Newcastle, Pennsylvania, noticed an open boxcar. They were positive the car, which hadn't been in service since 1931, had been closed just a few weeks prior. Inside, they discovered a grisly murder scene. A man's naked body lay on the floor. The amount of blood splatter indicated his heart had been beating when someone decapitated him. Reporters referred to the scene as the bloody boxcar. And, as gruesome as it was, investigators revealed another horrific detail. Three newspapers had been found with the body. One of those papers was the Cleveland Plain Dealer, dated July 1933. To investigators, this meant that the killer had returned to the scene between the time of death and when the workers discovered the open car. Four years later, in May of 1940, three more headless bodies were found on a boxcar. But the murders in the rural area of Pennsylvania, referred to as the Murder Marsh, had started much earlier. The body of an unidentified man was found in West Pittsburgh on October 6th of 1925. The cause of death had been decapitation, and the coroner estimated he'd been deceased for about three weeks. Eleven days later, the skeletal remains of another male victim were found not far from the first. He had also been decapitated. A woman's jawless skull was also found. Then, as suddenly as they'd started, the murders in Newcastle stopped, and the killings in Kingsbury began. Ness never stopped believing that Sweeney was the butcher of Kingsbury Run, and Detective Peter Marilow thought that the killer in Cleveland and the one in Pennsylvania were the same. Not only were the victims killed in the same manner, but they were also people living on society's fringes. Marilo also noted that the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad connected the two cities, and had two scheduled routes per day. Over 80 years later, we're no closer to solving the two cases. It seems the murderer managed to slip into the shadows. There's more to this story. Stick around after this brief sponsor break to hear all about it. Learn more at meaningfulbeauty.com. The terror began in 1974. At first, they were burglaries. Between 1974 and 75, roughly a hundred homes in Visalia, California, were robbed. The burglar left behind valuables and took small personal items instead. What made it more unsettling was the thief's signature. He rummaged through drawers and scattered any women's laundry he found around the house. And he often killed any dogs in the house. The press nicknamed him the Visalia Ransacker. After one murder was suspected of having been the work of the Ransacker, the break-in stopped. Not far away, a rapist began terrorizing the residents of Carmichael, Citrus Heights, and Rancho Cordova. No one knew at the time it was the work of the same man. Initially, he seemed to stalk women who lived alone, preferably those who lived in one-story houses near open spaces, making it easy for him to escape. In the days leading up to the assault, victims noticed a prowler in the area. Often, he would enter the home quietly. He'd unload any guns he found and leave ligatures to use on his victims later. The police believed he staked out his victims in advance, choosing women home alone or with small children. He broke in at night, waking his victims by shining a bright flashlight in their eyes, temporarily blinding them. Then he bound the women and raped them. The press dubbed him the East Side Rapist. When an article pointed out that none of the attacks happened in homes where men were present, the attacker took it as a challenge. He broke into homes and bound the men and women, He'd leave the man in the living room with a stack of dishes on his back while he assaulted the woman, warning the couple that if he heard plates fall to the floor, he'd kill them both. In 1978, he attacked and shot a couple while they were walking their dog. He also shot and killed the dog. In 1979, the attacker moved south. But this time, after binding a couple and raping the woman, he'd bludgeon or shoot the couple. Without realizing the same person was committing the attacks, a new nickname emerged—Original Night Stalker. It's estimated that between 1976 and 1986, he raped 50 women and killed 12 people. Often, he raped the victim repeatedly while other family members were bound and gagged nearby. Sometimes he killed the whole family, including the dog. Investigators determined that he had planned each attack to the smallest detail He also never stayed in one area, choosing a territory from Sacramento to Irvine. He took a five-year break from 1981 to 1986. And while the attacks stopped, he continued tormenting one of his surviving victims, calling her several times. With no leads and no further attacks, the case went cold. In 2001, DNA evidence linked the East Area Rapist to the original Night Stalker. Law enforcement had new information, but still no suspects and no leads. Then, author Michelle McNamara wrote the best-selling novel, All Be Gone in the Dark. She pored over the evidence and reports and named the suspect the Golden State Killer. McNamara's premature death pushed the case back into the news. Using evidence from a rape kit, the FBI was able to link the killer's DNA to a family on an ancestry site the FBI contacted a relative who helped in breaking the case in 2017. In 2018, police arrested 72-year-old James D'Angelo. As the tale of the Golden State Killer emerged, investigators learned through a former girlfriend that D'Angelo had once pointed a gun at her. He worked as a mechanic, moving from town to town. Neighbors said he had a temper. COVID-19 delayed the trial, but on August 1st of 2020, he pleaded guilty and confessed to 26 counts of murder, over a hundred break-ins, and several dozen rapes and other violent acts. Now in his late 70s, he's serving 26 consecutive life sentences. American Shadows is hosted by Lauren Vogelbaum. This episode was written by Michelle Muto, researched by Ali Steed, and produced by Miranda Hawkins and Trevor Young, with executive producers Aaron Menke, Alex Williams, and Matt Frederick. To learn more about the show, visit Grimandmile.com. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies. Need an easy button to feed your baby? Baby Brezza's Formula Pro Advanced makes a perfectly mixed warm formula bottle automatically at the push of a button. No air bubbles, no fuss. Literally, choose your temp, select your ounces, push start, and you're done. Works with virtually all formulas and bottles. Say goodbye to the 3 a.m. feeding chaos and hello to this revolutionary stress-free solution. Raising a baby is hard enough. Let baby Bretza make feeding a breeze. Get your Formula Pro Advanced at BabyBrezza.com.